0: This is our last Sunday in Matthew, um, and it's been really, really fun. And 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 of course, Matthew does a great job. He he saves. You might not say the best for last, but but something really, really great for last. And I also ask your forgiveness to indulge me in committing probably the worst public speaking sin that there is. I'm going to commit it right now as I begin my sermon with these words. According to Wikipedia. It's maybe slightly better than Webster's Dictionary defines a mission. According to Wikipedia, this is, I, I Wikipedia'd a mission statement, okay? And this is how, this is what I got. A short statement of why an organization exists, what its overall goal is, identifying the goal of its operations. According to Chris Bart, a professor of strategy and governance at McMaster University, a commercial mission statement consists of three essential components, okay? So three essential components in a corporate mission statement. Number one, key market, identifying your target audience. Number two, contribution, what's the product or service that you're providing? And number three, distinction, what makes this product or service unique, and why should people choose that over something else? If you know those three things, it's you're like getting an MBA this morning uh, from the pulpit. And so Professor Bart, he estimates that in practice, only about of mission statements say something meaningful. And I love this sentence that he provides. For this reason, they are widely regarded with contempt. (laughs) Widely regarded with contempt. I, I, I feel that. Now, a good mission statement can be really, really good, and we're going to get an example. We're going to get the best example of the best mission statement ever, of course, in our scripture today, but, but even in the corporate world or the nonprofit world, there, there are some really good ones, but a bad mission statement is bad because it's like the most bland, generic, boring, you know, corporate-y speak that there is, the lamest corporate speak that there is out there. But a good mission statement, in, in just a few words, it, it captures the essence of a company, an organization, what they're about, why they exist, what they want to do. And so we're going to, uh, much like Jeopardy! this morning, I'm going to provide some examples. This is in the interactive portion of the sermon. I'm going to provide you with mission statements. C. This is open to anyone. Please provide me, in, in the form of a question, um, the, the group that I'm talking about, the organization I'm talking about. And it gets progressively easier, so I want you to feel, I want you to feel better about yourselves as we go on. Uh, but the first one is really hard. It's really hard, actually. Uh, spread ideas. Spread ideas. Any ideas? Ted. Who? Ted. Yes, but it was not in the form of a question. What is TED? Yes, you get it. You get it. I'm sorry, Bradley. I'm sorry, Bradley. <laughs> All right, that was good. TED. Yes, that was really good. TED Talks, which TED is an acronym that stands for Technology, Technology Education, Design. Design. Wow, I didn't know that actually until now, so thank you. <laughs> Technology, education, TED Talks. Um, okay, this one. Give people the power to build communities and bring the world closer together. Facebook. Yeah, What is Facebook? Okay. Uh, help bring creative projects to life. Air-table. What? Airtable. Airtable? No. But thank you for guessing. Uh, Help bring creative projects. Think of creative projects that people couldn't do unless they were given money by other people. Pinterest, Pinterest? I love Pinterest. You could not like ma- Pinteresting things. Go GoFundMe, Kickstarter. GoFundMe, Kickstarter, Kickstarter, yes, Kickstarter. But GoFundMe was a very good, a very very good guess. Okay, seeking to put God's love into action, bringing people together to build homes, communities, and hope. Habitat for Humanity, yes, Rebecca. And, uh, oh, grant the wishes of children with life-threatening medical conditions to enrich the human experience with hope, strength, and joy. What does the Make-A-Wish Foundation? You're all winners. Those mission statements, they're good. I think those are, are, are examples of really great ones because they truly, I mean, we could guess them. The fact that we could guess them says that, you know, there's a reason that these companies are, are present in our consciousness because they're really good, organi- they're organizations that are really good at doing what they do and identifying that via their mission. Now there's the other hand, the other 90% of mission statements that are, are bland, boring, vague, and generic, and I'm not gonna pick on any, any companies or organization, but I did find a random mission statement generator online, and so here are just some of the results that I found. And you could sort of like think of a, you know, a, a, like if you think of the movie Office Space, what's the name of that company? In a tech. I feel like these could all be yes. <laughs> Ryan Hoosier is a wealth of movie knowledge. Uh, always, always, always. In a tech, I love it. So yeah, these could be like tech's mission statements. Um, our company exists to professionally integrate opportunities. Mm. Our goal is continually to continually foster unique content in order to reliably initiate catalysts for change. Yes. Our goal is to professionally develop economically sound infrastructures whilst continuing to professionally produce progressive solutions. (laughs) That last one was our, you know, church mission. No, I'm kidding. so with the rise, and you saw, you know, in the 20th century, like, there becomes this, you know, management becomes professionalized, and, 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 and you have rise of things like, the, you know, the Harvard Business School and the Wharton School of Business. You know, that, that, that management um, in post-World War II America, uh, it, it becomes the subject of, of study and of systemization and, and placing it in the academic realm. And so you see the rise of mission statements in corporate and nonprofit life. And you also then see this, of course, in the rise of the church. And especially as over the last two generations you've seen a decline in many cases, in many denominations, um, part of church redevelopment and, and revitalization has been that the church, part of that process is coming up with a mission statement. That one of the things that's missing from the church is a good mission statement. Now, as a am I'm a, I'm a pastor... And I've talked to a lot of pastors, and some of my pastor friends, they've gone through a process like this. The church needs to revitalize. So one of the things they do as a leadership is they get together and they say, we're going to come up with a mission statement. But also as a pastor who's looked for a job and talking to my colleagues who have looked for jobs, one of the things that's on a, a, a church's um, resume is, is their mission statement. And so uh, you, I've read hundreds of these, and my colleagues have read hundreds of these, and, and The sad truth is that so often what these mission statements reveal is this, there's no mission there. And I'll say this, this is one of my things that I'll repeat for probably the rest of my life, but the unspoken mission statement of every organization, doesn't matter if it's the church, but every organization, the default mission statement, if you don't, sort of tend to it or do anything about it is this, that our organization exists, our church exists to keep the members happy. That's our default mission. And so the strategy for fulfilling that mission is keep doing things the way we've always done them. Because the people who are already here must be happy with what's going on, so let's just keep doing it. But this is so sad because The church has been given by Jesus in this passage the most exciting mission statement in the history of mission statements. and It's the resurrection mission statement of Jesus. And so we're going to look this morning at at his great commission statement for the church. And what I love about Jesus is it's not just the resurrection like, wow, this cool, amazing thing that God can do. And Jesus raised and he shows himself and says, wow, this is real, it really happened. And then just ascends to heaven and leaves it to us to figure out what to do. No, he, he provides his disciples with this very specific, very audacious and expansive mission. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And, and the essence of this mission statement and everything that it entails, it's captured by this one word that occurs over and over again in our passage, All. We're going to look at all of Jesus' alls, and the alls that he gives to us. But first, we've got to set the stage, and that's what Matthew does in verses 16 and 17. So Matthew tells us, after Easter, the disciples, they head to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus has directed them. But Matthew doesn't just say the disciples. He says that the 11 disciples went to this mountain. A reminder that one of them is missing. Of course, Judas, the betrayer. But it's just important for us to note that Jesus' mission, it comes to a church that is 11 out of 12. It's in some ways incomplete. It's imperfect. Not all that it's supposed to be, like like us. So Jesus says, "Go go to the mountain. And we know that when people go to a mountain in Scripture... Some things are going to happen. Mountains in in, in Scripture are places of revelation. They're places of worship. But they're also places of mission, too. Genesis 22, Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain of the Lord to worship, to offer a sacrifice. God reveals himself by by providing the lamb. Moses is tending his father-in-law's flock at Mount Horeb, and God reveals his name to Moses and and he gives him a mission to liberate his people. God then leads the Israelites to Mount Sinai where they worship and are given the Ten Commandments. The, the law is given to them. God has Solomon build a temple on Mount Zion in the middle of Jerusalem. And this, this same mountain in Isaiah 2, it says, "'It shall come to pass in the latter days "'that the mountain of the house of the Lord "'shall be established as the highest of mountains "'and shall be lifted up above the hills.'" And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. So this mountain of worship is a mountain of mission too. Jesus, his most famous sermon, on a mountain. Peter, James, John, they see Jesus transfigured in his full glory on a mountain. So the very setting speaks to kind of what this mission statement is going to be about. It's going to be about worship. Yes, it's going to be about revelation, and it's going to be about mission. And verse 17, as we're setting this scene, it's one of the most wonderfully honest in the entire Bible. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. We often think, well, if only I had seen what the disciples saw, all my doubts would sort of melt away. But here we see that that's not the case. And the disciples here, they stand for all disciples in all ages. So just as we saw last Sunday, the women were leaving the tomb, and they were mixed, this mixture of, of, of joy and fear. So too, the disciples here, they stand in for the, for the, for the, for the entire church, this mixture of worship and doubt. And wonder of wonders is that Jesus takes this imperfect, incomplete, worshiping and doubting bunch of disciples, and he chooses this group of people to carry this mission forward into the world. All right, so that's just setting the stage. We have this incomplete church gathering on this mountain, this this pregnant setting. They're worshiping and doubting. And now we get to the alls. Verse 18 and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the mission of the church is rooted in Jesus' all-encompassing authority. So, how much authority does Jesus claim here? All of it. So that's that's a lot of authority. That's all of the authority. There is no more authority that one could claim than all of the authority. And so the most basic Christian confession from its earliest days, we see this in the New Testament, is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's a a way of of Christians confessing that authority. Which actually, if if you read N.T. Wright, he he makes this point time and again that that a common phrase you would hear in the Greco-Roman world is, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord, meaning I'm the one with the authority. I'm in charge. I'm in command. Listen to me. Obey me. Or else you might end up like Jesus. And you know, Caesar claims this authority, and you go, well, that's a lot of authority to claim. But he had some legions To back him up. But here is Jesus. He's making this claim, an even grander claim, all authority in heaven and on earth, on an anonymous mountain in Galilee to 11 Jewish peasants. A group who, if if we read the gospel of Luke, tells us, you know, Caesar's got his legions, an invincible fighting force. Luke tells us that they only had two swords between them, the the 11 disciples at this point. So if they're going to do any fighting, they've got to share uh, the sword and sort of pass it around. This is not exactly an intimidating bunch, right? You're not, no, they're not scaring anybody. But maybe the greatest evidence of all for this, this all authority of Jesus is the fact that these 11 disciples and the few others with them at this point, you know, numbering maybe in the dozens at this point, that they indeed are the people who are going to turn the world upside down. And on a mountain, another thing about mountains is they give you a wonderful sense of perspective. You can see things from far away that you couldn't see when when you're you're down in the valley. And so, you know, uh, uh, Jesus has this perspective. You know, here before him, it's just 11, 11 disciples. This tiny movement, it's based in Galilee. Yeah, they'll move to Jerusalem. But at this point, you know, he's not even a footnote. In history, uh, uh, a minor regional religious figure at best. But within 20 years, you know, Jesus can see that there's going to be riots in Rome because of him. And within 30 years, his followers will be persecuted by the emperor Nero himself. And within 300 years, looking out further, the emperor of the same empire that crucified him would become Christian. And looking even further to our day and age, nearly a third of the people on this planet Are going to be at least nominally Christian. So it's astounding. It's astounding. And so when we look at it that way, maybe that all authority claim of Jesus doesn't look so silly. Silly. So Jesus' universal authority, it flows out into this universal mission given to his followers. And so here's where we really get the, the, the mission statement: what is better known as the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the all-encompassing name of God, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So go to all the nations, teaching people to obey all that Jesus taught, and in the name of all the persons who constitute the triune God, all, all, all. So first is this command to go. So the church is a movement of God's people, never something static, never something stale, something frozen or encased in amber. The church is dynamic, always on the go, crossing boundaries, which means that things are always going to get messy. Whenever we go over borders and barriers, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to do the wrong thing. The missionary history of the church is is filled with that kind of stuff. However, the mission that, that Jesus gives to his disciples from the very first day is to go and be a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural movement. And so we see that the gospel doesn't belong to any one culture, but the gospel can take root in all cultures. Jesus, a Jew, gave this commission to eleven Jews. But it didn't stop. It didn't stay there. In order to become a Christian, you didn't have to become a Jew. That's part of what the book of Acts is about, wrestling with this question. How Jewish do you have to be to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian? But because Jesus is is sending his disciples to cross these boundaries and mission, we see the the church spreading in its earliest days, Christianity spreading to Turkey and Greece and Syria and Asia and Africa and Italy and beyond. And what we see at work here in, in the great commission in this mission statement is what the missiologist Andrew Walls, he calls there's two principles inherent in the gospel, the indigenizing principle and the pilgrim principle. So the indigenizing principle says that the gospel can take root in every single human culture, that each culture can express uh, the gospel in ways that are reflective of that culture, that makes sense within that culture. That's the indigenizing principle. But then there's the pilgrim principle that says when the gospel takes roots, it's going to challenge aspects of the dominant culture. That there will always be ways that it doesn't fit in and therefore causes Christians to fit out. But if we go back to Chris Bart, Dr. Chris Bart, from uh, the Wikipedia page that I began this sermon with, he said to have a good mission statement. Remember, there was three key components you have to have your target market, your target audience. And so who is, is, is the target audience for Jesus's message? All nations. All nations. That's like a very large target market. <laughs> That's everyone on planet earth. Everyone, everywhere. And so the gospel, the fundamental truth within the church's mission is that the gospel is for everybody. It's good news. It's for people on the other side of the world, but it's also for the people of South Minneapolis and, and the greater Twin Cities area. The gospel's for them too. And, and so one thing we have to wrap our heads around is when it comes to the Great Commission, Jesus is saying that mission isn't just something that missionaries do over there. And of course, we support missionaries who do that. That's part of it, absolutely. But mission is something that all of us are called to do. Right here. Right here. We are a part of Jesus' multicultural movement of people, and the challenge for us is to make sure we never forget that. We never cut ourselves off from the global church while engaging in mission in our own particular context. So Jesus says this mission is for everyone on planet Earth, but the second part of a good mission statement is is what's your contribution? What's the product or service you provide? In, in, In this case, Jesus identifies it as making disciples. Make disciples. And this is so important because discipleship is a word that, yes, basically belongs to the church at this point in time. But, but, you know, in the Greco-Roman context, in the Greek language, discipleship was about education. It was about learning. It was about apprenticing. So, yes, you'd learn ideas and you would learn practices. It's an educational word. And so, um, Jesus is sending out his followers into the world with this discipling task and so, what that means is, he's not sending them out as a conquering army. He's not sending them out as an imperialist force. He's sending them out as, as humble tutors, looking for students. That's a very different posture to take towards the world. So, what does it mean to make disciples? Jesus very helpfully spells that out in verses 19 through 20. Now, I hope your eyes don't glaze over at this point, and I'm going to make it in less than a minute. But it's some Greek grammar for you. So did you know that? No. Uh, So every Greek sentence has one main verb. And then you can have participial clauses or dependent clauses um, uh, based off of that main one that that flesh out or explain uh, the point further. And so the main verb in Jesus' mission statement to the church is this, make disciples. That's the main verb, make disciples. And then the participial uh, phrases spell that out. They flesh that out. Those are the I-N-G verbs, by going, baptizing, and teaching. That's what Jesus means by make disciples. So going, we engage the world outside of the church's walls, the broader culture, the the greater world. Baptizing. And so uh, everything that's tied up in baptism, people get baptized because they believe the Christian message about Jesus is true. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That his kingdom vision is, is true, and we want to be a part of that. And how do people come to believe that message is true? Well, they're taught it. They hear it, either in their family or for some, from someone else. That's evangelization. But they also see it put into practice in ways that are compelling and beautiful. They see Christians practicing what they preach and preaching what they practice So going, baptizing, and then teaching. Jesus says, teach people to obey all, that word again, that I have commanded. And so we do that through studying scripture and through reflecting uh, on how Jesus' words ought to inform how we live, what we do with our resources, our our, our, very physical selves, our time, our talent, our treasure. To be a Christian is to be a lifelong learner in the school of obeying Jesus. Jesus. All right, so we've got the, you know, target market, uh, all nations. We've got the uh, contribution, the, the product or service, uh, discipleship, all that Jesus commanded. But what about that distinction? What makes this unique? You know, why should we buy in, in, the, in the terms of a mission statement? Why buy this product or service over another? And, of course, this is crass when applied to Christianity. But what makes the Christian faith unique is this. Jesus' great promise, his great assurance that we see in verse 20. And behold, I am with you always, literally all of the days, to the end of the age. And so the best news of all, when we get this great commission statement, isn't just that Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, which that's an impossible assignment. Especially these 11 hearing this, they would think there's no way... We're going to have trouble reaching even our nation as opposed to all of the nations. But Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always to the end of the days. And so this great promise is that when we're engaging in his mission, he will be with us. Helping us, guiding us, correcting us, sustaining us, always. And so no other religious leader, no other religious figure could ever or has ever made a promise like that because none of them are like Jesus, who Jesus is, God in the flesh. And on this promise to always be with his disciples, I love what the great preacher Tom Long says. He says, This parting but enduring word from the risen Christ is the heart of Matthew's whole gospel. As the church goes out with fear and joy, faith and doubt, devotion and dread to do the work of Christ, it is not promised success at every term, a glad welcome in every heart, or even freedom from persecution and suffering. What the church is promised is that God in Christ will not abandon us, but is present in the midst of the faithful, loving, encouraging, guiding, and giving us hope. Now, just a final word on mission statements. E- even though I'm, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm, I'm much more worried that if I am involved in coming up with a mission statement, it's sort of gonna fall in the, ni- the 90% category <laughs> rather than, than, than the 10. But so, what, you know, what, what, what What's our mission? Why, why are we together? Why do we exist? Now, when I think about that question, I think that our, our mission here at Res is, is working together to obey the great commandment and fulfill the great commission. I'm, just, I'm plagiarizing Matthew when it comes to these things. You know, working together, cooperation, partnership is at the heart of what we do. And when Jesus was asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? This is what uh, uh, has been called Jesus' creed, the Jesus creed. These were his core beliefs. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's a really good thing to have as a part of our mission, why we do what we do, to be about and believe the things that Jesus was about. But then we also get this great commission at the end of Matthew to... to be a people on mission, sharing the gospel, making disciples, teaching people to obey what Jesus said, connected to the all nations, to this global Christian community. So that's why we exist together, better together, obeying the great commandment, fulfilling the great commission. And, and that's who God has called us to be, even as this you know, particular and peculiar community. And so there's nothing terribly novel about that at all. Great commandment, great commission. Novelty is is highly overrated. But the ways that we will engage this mission, that's where things get really interesting because that can play out in a thousand different ways in a thousand different situations. But I really believe in terms of a mission, this is what we're supposed to be about because this is what Jesus tells us we're supposed to be be about. So we can bring a little bit of heaven, a little bit of the kingdom here to earth, until he comes again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.